Hey, did you know that 76% of all statistics are totally made up? It's true, 86%. Listen, if you're one of those people that you tend to think about things and not take it at face value and you ask questions, you're in good company. I am one of those people too, especially when it comes to questions of faith. You know, last year here at Northview, we kicked off a new initiative called Questioning Christianity. It was an opportunity for people to come together to ask their questions. Could have been simple questions, like what is Christianity all about? Or much deeper, like does God actually exist? Can I trust the Bible? And why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? It went so well that we're kicking it off again this year and I want to invite you out. It is a great opportunity to come and maybe ask the questions that you have or people that you interact with, you know that these are questions that they're struggling with. It's also a great place to invite somebody to come and explore these big questions together. It's a time of teaching, discussion, and Q&A. So I invite you to come, bring a friend, and register today at northview.org. Hey, it's great to be with you. Good evening, and welcome to those of you joining us over in Mission Campus. Glad that you're with us. You'll need your Bibles. We are in the Gospel of John. You should know that. We're three weeks into a new study, and we're doing a big chunk today. There's going to be two stories back-to-back, and so it's a long section that we're going to be diving into, and so uh, you'll need your Bibles with you. So, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row? What does it mean? 16th century, apparently, 18th century notes back, looking back into the 16th century. Lots of theories. Who's Mary? Why is she contrary? Why is her garden not growing or growing? Uh, Maybe it's just a woman who's trying to grow her family. Maybe it's a religious metaphor. Maybe it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the garden she's growing is the Roman Catholic Church. No, no, no. It's a political statement. It's Mary... The first Mary, Queen Mary, Queen of England. Oh, it's Mary, Queen of Scots. But why is Mary contrary? Well, if you're the mother of Jesus, you've had to watch your son suffer and die. So, of course, you're sad. If you're a woman in leadership in the 16th century, you will know the first queen ever to sit on the English throne. You had to be a tough-minded woman. So, of course, you're going to be contrary. And yet, she got some stuff done. So, what could we learn from Mary? What advice would she give? Well, frankly, probably none. (laughs) And does it really matter? The more important question is this. Jesus, how are you going to grow your garden? Jesus, uh, how do you grow your church? How do you build your church? How do you build your vineyard? The metaphor that the scriptures use. And that, of course, was the promise that Jesus made to the 12 when he sat with them and said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That was his promise. And by implication, he let them know that he would do it through them. You're going to go out into all the world and make disciples. You're going to go right to the very end of the earth, to the end of the ages. You will preach to every ethnic group before the end comes. So I want to put a statement in front of you today that I firmly believe, and yet it is one that people wrestle with. And the statement is this, it is God's will that the church should grow. It is God's will that the church should grow. Now the debate around that statement typically comes down to semantics and implications. 
I have never ever heard anyone argue with Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, because after all, that was Jesus' very words. Who's going to argue with Jesus? But the wrestle we have with a statement like that is unpacking and applying it in our generation. And so people will ask the questions, well, is it true in every time and every place and every generation that Jesus does indeed build his church? Is it true for every local congregation, every local small little church, or is it only the capital C major universal church around the world? And could we turn it on its head and take an implication from it that if a local church is not growing, are they somehow not doing what Jesus wants them to do? Uh, the most powerful pushback I get over the years, or the debate rather, would be this. Well, it depends on what you mean by growth, quote unquote. Are you talking about numerical growth or quantitative growth? Are you talking about the number of people or the kind of people that the Lord is growing? Because you know what? You can grow a really big church that can be really large numerically and yet be a shallow church. We've all heard that statement. A mile wide and a half inch deep. And crowds gather for lots of stuff, right? Just because there's a great number of people gathered does not necessarily mean it's a great church. Uh, one of my favorite authors years ago, I heard him speaking and he said, you know what? Crowds gather for any number of things. They gather for mob riots. They storm the Capitol. They gather for lynchings, they gather for sports events and concerts, they gather for Tupperware parties. No, numbers alone do not indicate a great church. You can have a very large crowd. It is the kind of people that the church is growing that matters, that people who are deeply rooted in the word and deeply rooted in community. So what I want to convince you of in this next little while is that that need not be a contradiction between those two. That Jesus can and will build his church both in number and in type. So you've heard us talk lots about more and better churches and more and better leaders and more and better disciples. That that's what we feel God has called us to. More and better churches, more and better leaders, and more and better disciples. So is it God's will that the church should grow? Well, my answer is yes. A categorically yes, no debate. You might argue with me, but you're wrong. Uh, how does he accomplish his work, you would say? How does Jesus do his work? Well, if you read the Bible and you read New Testament history and church history, it becomes very clear that there are two primary ingredients in the growth of Jesus' church, and they are preaching and prayer. Preaching and prayer. Now, there may be lots of other stuff wrapped around it. There may be more than preaching and prayer, but there is never less than preaching and prayer. You always have to have those two. You might do other stuff. So you just read through the book of Acts and you see the pattern. The book of Acts opens with the disciples in a prayer meeting. And then the Holy Spirit falls and then they go out preaching and 3,000 people are saved. Peter's very first sermon and 3,000 people are saved. That's a pretty good sermon, hey? Give him a C plus maybe. And then what do they do? They go back into a prayer meeting. They prayed, they preached, they went back to prayer. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they get an opportunity to preach to a lame man and provide him healing from his disease. Acts 6, the apostles can't keep up with the growth of the church and all the administrative needs. And so they form the first deacon committee so that they can devote themselves to prayer and preaching the word. 
Acts 10, Peter is in prayer and the Holy Spirit says to him, go preach to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and on and on and on and on the illustrations go. Prayer and preaching always together. So missiologists ask these kind of questions. Why does the church grow more quickly in some regions of the world than in others? As we study these missionary principles, are there common factors? And a guy named David Garrison has done a ton of work on this. And in his book, Church Planning Movements, he says, there are some common factors where we see explosive growth. Three things in particular, Bible preaching, a steady vigil of prayer, and intentional leadership development. Sound familiar? Preach the word. Pray like crazy and equip the next generation. But then he goes on to say, but you know what? There are some areas of the world where the church is literally exploding. House churches multiplying like rabbits. Why does it happen there? And he said, you know what? There's six other accelerators that we see in those regions. And he puts them up this way, prayer. So that's interesting. Prayer on top of prayer that he's already mentioned. Supernatural expressions of power. Simplicity. Persecution. Poverty and reproducibility. If you have those six, the church will grow faster, he says. That's interesting, is it not? Because we have very few of those here, right? So the question is not the Lord using multiple means to wake up people, but as you press further into John's gospel, we are going to see some of these principles. How do you build the church? Prayer and preaching, never less than that. If you want to speed it up, add some of those others. Add miracles, add persecution, add poverty. Uh, I remember so well uh, in North India, Carolyn and I traveling years ago in a conversation in the backseat of a car. We're traveling with a medical doctor. The team was broken up. The medical doctor serves as a, a doctor, and then he plants churches on the side. He oversaw a network that had planted 10,000 house churches. Most fascinating conversation is the cell phone rings. And he answers it and says, yes, Mrs. So-and-so, and so -and I'll give you the Coles notes. Yes, I remember you. Yes, I know you have cancer. And yes, Jesus can heal you. Do you want to be healed right now? Okay, let me pray for you. Dear Lord, please heal Mrs. So-and-so. Amen. Now, it was longer than that, but I'm giving you the Coles notes. And then what he said next was absolutely amazing. He says, all right, Mrs. So-and-so, you will have been healed. But I'm not in the office this week, and so I would like you to go tomorrow to my office, and my colleague will confirm that the cancer is gone. And then Sunday, I would love to see you and your family at church. Is that okay? Great. Goodbye. And we're sitting there going, what have I just listened to? Healing over the phone? And so he went on to explain that this is how God is moving in North India that a Hindu family who had no interest in Christianity but a sick wife, afraid she's going to die of cancer, would be healed in Jesus' name. She would go home to her family healed and say, we've got to go to that church on Sunday. And the husband, at least, and probably the entire family would show up and they would hear the gospel and very soon they would come to faith in Christ. Is that not amazing? It's crazy. But as you press further into John's gospel, you see this principle that people come to Jesus one life at a time. That's what we're going to see in this text, one by one by one. And it's a theme that was introduced back in the first 18 verses. In the middle of that, verse 9 to 12, it says, The true light, which is Jesus, was coming into the world. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you see the principle right there that one by one by one they come to Christ. That some will receive him and others will reject him. It's always been that way. The same message to the same audience, some receive it and some walk away. Some will mock it, some will heckle, and others will fall in worship. Some will hang around on the fringes. They like the signs and wonders. They like the free food, feeding of the 5,000. But they don't persevere to the end. And others will stick with Jesus. So today we're going to meet four more witnesses. Lots of stories. We're going to read two of them. It's a long chunk. So follow along, verse 35, right to the end of the chapter. So the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. We're going to spend a lot of time in stories, this uh, series, and a quick comment about the genres in Scripture. So there are several genres of literature in your 66 books of the Bible. There are law and history. There are poetry books, wisdom books. There are prophetic writings. There are a series of these four biographies, the Gospels, and then there's a whole bunch of letters in the New Testament. In each genre, you approach differently. But what's interesting is that over 40% of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, over 40% is given to us in story form. And stories can be difficult to interpret and apply. Uh, In fact, I think it's why Jesus was asked by his disciples, Jesus, why do you speak in parables so much? You're confusing people. They don't understand you. Why do you tell so many stories? And the challenge in reading a story is to figure out what does the story mean for me? Should I expect that everything that happened to the people in that particular story could also happen to me? Is that the point? So Moses gets a burning bush. I want a burning bush too. Uh, 
Esther spends a full year getting ready for a beauty contest. Does that mean that every woman should get a free year at the spa? Maybe. So in stories, we don't get so much directives or commands, but we get principles and we get concepts and they can be hard to understand and interpret. They can be easily misinterpreted and misapplied. And maybe you heard the old story of the guy who was so frustrated reading the gospels. He's so frustrated with Jesus, with all of these stories, story, story. Lord, just give me a command. Just tell me something to do and I'll do it. And he's like, tell you what, Lord, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to close my eyes, point to the Bible, and whatever I point to, I'm going to go do it. Okay, Lord, close eyes, point to the Bible. Matthew 27, Judas hanged himself. (laughs) Dang, that was not good. Let's try it a second time. Closes his eyes, points at the Bible. Luke 10, go thou and do likewise. (laughs) Didn't work. As we come to these stories, we can ask several questions. And the one I'm asking as we come to these stories is this. Can we learn something from these stories about how Jesus is growing his garden? How Jesus is building his church? And I think we can. So we're going to dive in. You are going to look at with me four invitations, four questions, four reveals, and at the end, four practical takeaways. So it's a 16-point message. Last weekend was seven points. This weekend is 16. Next weekend will be pointless. (laughs) Ezra happens to be preaching next weekend, so there you go. The first invitation was John the Baptist when he said, look, behold, consider Jesus. It's a great question. What do you think of Jesus? That's basically what he was saying to his disciples. Look, there goes the Lamb of God. Take a look. Ask the question. As you're looking at him, what do you think of Jesus? It's a very, very important question for all of us. Every single one of us must answer that question. What do you think as you look at Jesus? Jesus himself would say in John 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Look to the Son. Look at Jesus. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. What do you think of Jesus? That was John's invitation. The second and third come from Jesus. He says, come and see in the first story and follow me in the second story. So in the first story, two disciples come to him, Andrew and an unnamed other. Uh, Many commentators think it was probably John, the author of this book himself. And there's good evidence for why. Because Andrew and Peter and James and John, two brother sets, were good friends. They grew up in the same area of Galilee, the same small town. They were fishermen side by side. Matthew 3, when they're called, the four of them, it sounds like they're literally side by side fishing. And Jesus calls two sets of brothers. So it is likely that James and John knew Andrew and Peter, and this might be John but it doesn't matter if it is or isn't. Because the invitation is still true. Come and see, come and follow me. Come and be with me, Jesus is saying. Come and stay with me in essence. And then the little note there, it was the 10th hour. So in the Jewish time frame in the first century, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of dark, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., the 10th hour means it's 4 p.m. So in two hours, it's going to be getting dark, but that's okay. Come on over, stay with me. I'd like some time with you. And then in the second story, 43 to 51, Jesus finds Philip the next day. 
And we hear this next invitation, come and follow me. And basically it's the same invitation. Come and be with me. I want to spend some time with you. I want to walk alongside of you. And, and Jesus was saying in essence to these disciples, I want to know you. And the fourth invitation was the one to another invitations between Andrew and Philip. So verse 40, Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon and he brings him to Jesus. In verse 45, Philip chases down his buddy Nathaniel and says, come and see. You got to meet this guy. You got to meet this Jesus. Now we're going to circle back around to that in a moment. But so far what we've got in this text is we've got Andy and Pete and Phil and Nate, the first Jewish boy band mentioned in the New Testament. And there's an awful lot that we could look at. But what we see is the invitational nature of the Christian faith. In essence, it is this. Jesus wants to be known. He wants to be known. Come and see me. Okay, four invitations, four questions. What are you seeking? Where are you staying? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And how do you know me? So the first one, what are you seeking? See, Jesus was comfortable with blunt questions. He often asked people blunt questions. If you read through his story, why are you following me? What is it you want? Why are you, you know, tracing along behind? What is it you want from me? Direct questions. And he seemed to be comfortable with direct questions putting back on him. But I think that question is a, an important question for all of us. Why are we here? What are we seeking? In fact, literally, I mean it in this moment in time. Why are you here? Have you ever given a thought to that when you walk through the doors of the church to come for a gathering, to just pause for a moment and to ask yourself, so why exactly am I here? Like, is it just a habit? It's something religious that our family has always done. My parents dragged me here. My girlfriend brought me along, or maybe I'm looking for a girlfriend. Why are you here? I think Jesus would be comfortable with those kind of questions. And then they ask back the question, where are you staying? What's so funny? What are you seeking? Answer with a question. Well, where are you staying? And the question back is, it's the 10th hour, it's 4 o'clock. It's going to be dark soon. And the question is implying, Lord, can we come with you? Can we see where you hang out? Can we hang out with you? We want to have some conversation. We'd like time with you. And I think in that moment that Jesus had to, in his heart of hearts, go, I love it. I love it. Can I just get a few hours alone with you, Lord? And how often have we felt that way, right? Oh, Lord, if I could just find a way to get some time alone with you, some quiet time, just you and me, Lord, that I could hear from you, that I could learn from you. Nate goes on to throw some humor into the text. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He throws the humor in. Now, if you're a politically correct police, please do not recoil in shock at this politically incorrect statement. He is just murmuring, like all of us do. Believe me, we all do it. So Vancouverites look down on people who live in Abbotsford. Did you know this? We lived in the city for eight years. I know it. They make fun of people who live in Abbotsford. People who live in Abbotsford make fun of people who live in Mission. Sorry, people in Mission, but you know this. This is true. People who live in Mission in Abbotsford make fun of people who live in Chilliwack. 
People who live in Chilliwack make fun of people in Agassiz, and I don't know what's beyond Agassiz, so I guess we give up. People who live in British Columbia like to make fun of people who live on the prairies, right? Oh, it's a great place to be from Saskatchewan. Bob, it's a great place to be from Saskatchewan. Don't really want to live there. I just want to be from there. It's not racism. We need to take a note there because these were all Jews. But it is definitely socioeconomic prejudice. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his story. In, in essence, he goes, look, there's a guy in whom there's no guile and a guy in whom there's no deceit. What you see is what you get. He just calls it like, whether you agree with him or not, whether it's a bit of a redneck statement, it's okay. What you see is what you get. I can work with that is what Jesus is saying. I can work with that level of honesty because you compare Nathaniel to the Pharisees. And Jesus could never get a straight answer from the Pharisees, right? They were always beaten around the bush, but Nate just calls it like he sees it. And then verse 48, how do you know me? Nathan's question to Jesus, we'll come back around to it. It's not just a casual who told you about me, but Jesus, you know stuff about me that no one could possibly know about me unless it had somehow been revealed. You've got an inside scoop looking over the shoulder of my life, and Nathan is intrigued by this Jesus, the Lord who has seen into his heart and his mind and his life. So four invitations, four questions, then there are four reveals as Jesus starts to pull back the veil on who he was and is. And the first reveal is actually hidden from our eyes. We don't see it. It's implied, but we don't listen to the conversation. So between verse 39 and verse 41, there is a conversation that takes place that we're not privy to. Andrew and the other disciple go with Jesus. It's evening. They want to go where he's staying. And we could assume it's getting dark. They maybe stayed over. Who knows? But whatever Jesus said to them in those first hours of conversation was life-changing. Because the very next words that we hear from Andrew's lips are he's going to find his brother saying, we have found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. You got to come and meet him. What did Jesus say to them in those quiet hours? We don't know. But whatever it was, it convinced Andrew. Some have said, well, it was probably like Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, post-resurrection, when Jesus walks with a couple disciples along the road to Emmaus and he unpacks the whole Old Testament. He walks them through the Old Testament how all the law and prophets point forward to Jesus. Maybe that's what he did, but we don't know. The second reveal is Jesus starts to put his authority on display. And we see it in two ways. His invitation, or actually a command to these men, come and follow me. And secondly, in changing Simon's name to Peter. And in both of those instances, Jesus is assuming or implying a role of authority. So as a teacher or a rabbi, come, follow me. You're going to learn from me. Drop everything you're doing. Leave behind your careers, your fishing, your nets. Leave them. Come. Follow me. He's assuming authority. Only a person with authority can do that. Secondly, he assumes authority in changing the name. Simon, you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. What's your name? Simon. Nah, I'm not going to call you Simon. From now on out, you're Rocky. 
because that's what the name means. If it was in our day, he would have called him Rocky. And there's an entire study that we could just press right there and go into of what naming means in the scriptures and the authority that is embedded and signified in this act of naming something or someone, a sense of giving an identity to. Now, as North Americans, most of us don't get this. We don't understand it. It's not part of our culture. Our First Nations brothers and sisters will understand this better because they know the significance of a name being conferred on someone and the value and the identity that is given in a name being conferred on. And it's all over the Bible. So Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Sarai is changed to Sarah. Gideon, this guy with a tiny little army, is called a mighty man of valor. Wow. You see, what Jesus was doing, he's speaking into Peter's life something that he knew would be true. Peter, you're the rock. And ultimately, he would say, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Did you know that God has a new name for every one of his kids? A little Bible trivia. Revelation 2. So when we stand before the Lord, he says we each get a white stone, and on that stone is a new name for each one of us that the Lord has a special name for you and a special name for me, and it's only between us, me and him, you and him. It's private. The Lord's gonna give you a new name. Think about that. The third reveal is Jesus to Nathan. When he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And in that moment, Jesus is showing some supernatural knowledge. And at first you think, what's the big deal? That's a kind of a strange comment. I saw you about the fig tree. What, is, what does it mean? What is that about? So commentators would say, well, it could mean several things. It could mean that Nathaniel was well off, that Nathaniel came from a wealthy home because the wealthy were known to have orchards and trees and vineyards, and they had the luxury of sitting under the shade tree. So maybe it was that Nathaniel was well off, but you add it to the fact that we know that Nathan was a fisher. So then it's probably not that. The other thoughts are this, that the fig tree represented where the teacher would sit. Uh, even today in uh, third world countries, a teacher will sit under a shade tree and the students come to him. So too in first century Judaism. A teacher would sit under the tree or the tree, the fig tree would represent a place of meditation, a place where you went to learn and contemplate and uh, where you went to ponder and, and dig deeply into life. So in essence, it might be as though Jesus said, yeah, I saw you wandering into the metaphysical bookstore. Or I saw you at House of James. Is that better? Or I was looking over your shoulder as you did that internet search for comparative religions. And Nathan's like, how do you know this? How do you know this about me? The only way you can know this about me is if you have supernatural knowledge. You must be the son of God, the king of Israel. Whatever it meant, it meant something significant to Nathan. He revealed something that nobody else would know. And then the fourth reveal was this, most powerful and critical. As Jesus pulls back the veil just a bit, in your fig tree musings, Nathan, those are just small potatoes to what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of greater things, so just hang out with me and all the miracles that fill this book. But in verse 51, it's like another lightning bolt across the sky when in essence he says, do you remember Jacob's dream back in the Old Testament? 
Do you remember that dream when the angels were coming up and down a stairway, up a ladder, and Jacob met with God, he wrestled with God, and he saw this vision of the heavens opened, and, and then he named that place Bethel, the house of God, Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Do you remember that dream? Well, this is going to blow your mind, but that ladder is actually standing right in front of you. The Son of Man is indeed that ladder. So now you cue the music and you pull out your old Led Zeppelin music. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. You've all heard the tune. If we would play it, you'd go, I remember that tune. If you know the song, it's about a woman who is spending her life collecting gold and trinkets because she thinks she can buy her way into heaven. It's about a man and his spiritual journey through life and trying to figure out the stairway to heaven. And Jesus is making a massive reveal in this statement when he says to Nathan, I'm the bridge, I'm the gate, I'm the way, I'm the door, I am the ladder. I'm the ladder. You look to me and you're going to literally see heaven open. I am the way to heaven. I am the stairway. Four invitations, four questions, four reveals. So, what is this text about in the simplest of terms? Well, the big idea I gave you at the start, and I want to add a couple layers to it, is this. It is God's will that the church should grow. Secondly, God will grow it one life at a time. And thirdly, most people come on the arm of a friend. You see it in the text, and you also see it in church history. So let me just change mode for the last few minutes and move from preaching to teaching. So switch gears in your mind. Let me ask you some simple questions of application, some practical takeaways. We don't often end like this. The question, do we really believe that it is God's will that the church should grow in both Abbotsford and in Mission? Do we believe that? Do we believe that there are still people in our communities, right in our own backyard, who are far from God that God wants to reach with the gospel? Yes. Do we believe of the 200,000 plus who live on the north and the south shore of this little chunk of the Fraser River, that more of them are destined for salvation? And if you said yes, then you ask the question, okay, but how? How? Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, great. But specifically, step by step by step, how? And most people, when you listen to our stories, it's a friend or a family member brought me to Jesus. Is that not true? My parents, my family, my friend, a work associate, somebody at school, somebody on my sports team introduced me to the Christian faith. In fact, lots of studies have been done on this topic. That 70 to 80% of people say, I came to Jesus on the arm of a friend. Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. When they looked at all the people who came to faith in Christ, they would ask the question, how did you get to one of our evangelistic meetings? How did you actually get to hear Billy Graham? And 80% said, a friend brought me. A friend brought me to hear Billy preach. So how are we doing at bringing our friends to Jesus? So I'll put some numbers on the screen and I'll interpret them for you. 85% of churches in North America are, are in plateau or decline. 15% are growing. That's good news. Until you examine the growth a little more closely, 
And you realize that those who are growing, 70% are growing by transfer growth. Meaning Christians who move to town to find a new church or they move across town, one church to another. 20% is a great number. We're keeping our kids. 20% of our growth is that we're making babies and they're growing up and they're staying with us. Praise God. The other 10% is everything else. The prodigals who are coming back to faith and then getting hard and fast numbers on pure conversion growth is very hard, but most missiologists say in North America, it's probably about 2% of that growth is truly evangelistic growth. So an issue that we've been talking about at the pastor's table, at the leadership table, is this. How do we increase our evangelistic effectiveness? Northview, how do we increase our evangelistic effectiveness? How many new people are coming to Northview because they have come to faith in Jesus? Not just new Christians who've moved in from out of town or coming across town from other churches. The question, is anybody coming to faith around this place? The good news is, yes, they are. But we want to see so many more. Amen? And so before we close, I want to give you four little practical takeaways. If you've been around the last two to three years, you have seen all of these. I've drawn these on the board before, but I want to put them up one more time. So let me just remind you of four little pictures. So let me remind you of your identity as an evangelical. So a lot of people don't like the word evangelical anymore because it gets attached to politics, particularly stateside. Somehow we got to keep that word. It's a good word. And somebody says, so what's an evangelical? Well, an evangelical, David Bebbington. Uh, how do you draw a megaphone? Yeah, that's a megaphone. Okay, speaks going out, all right. The Bible, the cross, conversionism, and a megaphone, activism. That this is what evangelicals are. That this is the definition. We are people of the book. We are people of the cross. We are people that believe that you must make a U-turn. You're not born walking in step with Christ. That at some point in time, you've got to meet him and you've got to make a choice to turn your life around. The biblical term is repentance. And that we believe that. And that evangelicals believe we've got work to do. There's things we need to do. So Menno Simon said, true, evan true evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It must act. It must serve. It must feed the poor. It must preach the gospel. Evangelicals cannot sit on their butts, is what Menno Simons meant by that statement. Second, let me ask you who's already in your life. So this, uh, the paper's the wrong shape, but if you take a uh, landscape portrait, draw six lines... So you got seven columns, is that six or seven? Whatever it is. And then do a relational audit. Ask yourself, who's already in my life? This is a very interesting exercise. Do it alone, then do it with a friend or somebody in your family. And if you're in a care group, I would encourage you do this as a care group and pool all of your numbers as a care group to ask yourself. So think through your month, the 60, 70, 80, maybe maximum 100 people that you know already. They're your friends, they're your family, they're your neighbors, they're the people that you work with, the people that you play sports with, the people you go to school with. Whoever that you know well enough to say, I know these people well enough that I know something about them, and then ask which category they in. So this category far left would be the nuns and the duns. No religious affiliation or I'm done with that. Been there, done that, gone back. Do you know some of those people? Put their names on that list. This is other religions. So, other people of faith. They're spiritual. They affirm some other world religion. They believe in something, but not Christianity. Do you know some of those people? 
Then you got people who are curious, but skeptical. So they might explore, they might ask some questions, they're a little bit curious, and then you've got actively searching. And I know you can't read this, but that's okay, I'm telling you what it is. Actively searching. They are open. Do you know people in those categories? And then at this category, the cross comes in. Conversion happens. And you got baby Christians, you got growing Christians, and you got reproducing Christians. So if you think through your Rolodex of 60, 70, 80 relationships that you know well enough, where would you put them on this screen? It's a very interesting exercise because it's going to reveal a lot about our relationships. For some of you, you're going to be like, all my friends are non-believing friends. Some of you, it'll be the opposite. Absolutely everybody in my life is a Christian. You need to examine how will God use your relationships. Let me give you one more. Just step outside the front door. So you've seen this before. Two guys out of Denver wrote a great book called The Art of Neighboring. So draw yourself a tic-tac-toe. This is a great little test. Put your house in the middle of it. Whatever your neighborhood, whatever your house represents. If you live in a condo, if you live on a farm, if you live in a neighborhood, whatever, you can figure it out. Who are the eight people that literally physically live closest to you? The eight people around your living place. And then ask yourself some questions. Four questions. Do you know their first name? Can you fill in all eight first names? Second, can you fill in the first and last name? Thirdly, do you know something about them besides, yeah, they put their garbage out on Tuesdays? No, like, yes, there's cancer in the home. Or they've got aging parents. Or I know that they're having some trouble with their kids. Like, do you know something about them? And number four, do you know anything about their spiritual condition? So the guys who wrote this book and distribute this test around North America said it's only about 3% of Christians can answer all four questions in all eight squares. Like, who's right outside our door? Think about that. And then finally, the last one, and we'll just show up a screen. Back in January introduced you to this five by five by five principle. Saying, would each one of us think through five people that we love, five people that we know who are far from God. We know them and we love them. And if we did nothing else in this year, but pray for them. If we did nothing else, we didn't have a chance to speak to them, we couldn't love on them, we couldn't give them a gift, we could do nothing except pray for them, what would the Spirit of God do in their lives? So if you didn't get a chance to pick up one of those little cards, we printed them off. They've been out on the tables. We printed a whole bunch more at every door, at every campus. These cards are available. I'd encourage you, pick up one of these. Pray for it. Look at it and go, Lord, are there five people that I know and love that you would put on my heart? So here's the question. Is it God's will that the church should grow? And my answer is categorically yes. Unapologetically, yes. So who do we know and love that needs to hear about Jesus? And are we loving, are we praying, and are we looking for opportunities? Oh God, may you give us a heart for our own backyard. Amen? You stand with me. I want to pray for you, and the teams will come. Lord Jesus, uh, what an interesting text as we watch the story of these four men who get introduced to you, and we see the principle as they came on the arm of a friend. John the Baptist pointed you out. Andrew brings his brother. 
Philip brings his friend Nate, and they come to Jesus. Lord God, we pray for Canada, we pray for BC, and we pray for the Fraser Valley. And then specifically, Lord, we pray for our backyard. We pray for Abbotsford, we pray for Mission, these communities that we call home. And we know, Lord, and we believe in our heart of hearts that there are a lot of people that you have marked for salvation, they just don't know it yet. Men and women and boys and girls growing up in this community who right now are far from God, but by your spirit, you want to let them know how much you love them and what you did to reconcile them to yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would begin to fan into flames a new spirit of evangelism among us. I pray that you would pour out the gift of evangelism. And I pray for a spirit of evangelism. I pray that we would have a burden to love on and to pray for and to be concerned for our friends that we love who are far from God. And Lord, in your grace, may we have the great joy in the coming months to see literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them come to faith in Christ. May that be our joy, Lord, we ask. We ask for it. As you grow your garden, in Jesus' name, amen. Blessings, guys.